Turn to 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, we're going to do some low-level flying, I think, tonight, just to get through this book. Um, <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 14. Um, going to just hit on some stuff. Going to look at some verses, and some are just going to give you the verses. Because this so, I don't want to get lost in the weeds, so to speak, because this could be like a six-month to a year study easily. 2 Kings chapter 14. Um, I want to just call this beginning, this is kind of like the end of last week where we left off, just the downward spiral continuing, right? Just the downward spiral continuing. And I want to pull out these, all these bad kings just seems to be like one after another of these bad kings to Israel and even in Judah, many bad kings in Judah, a few good ones in Judah we'll touch on later. But I want to pull out some of the lessons from some of these bad kings as we see this kind of toilet flush, so to speak, on the nation. Second Kings 14, the first one I want to give you here, and again, I'm not going through every one, but uh, just uh, a bulk of them. The first one is Amaziah. He's in Second Kings 14, 3 to 4. And let's just look about this guy, Amaziah. What's the lesson that we could pull out from Amaziah? Look at verse 3, and it says, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father, he did according to all things as Joash his father did, howbeit the high places were not taken away, as yet the people did sacrifice and burnt incense on the high places. Here is the lesson that you get from Amaziah, and I'll show you why. Incomplete devotion leads to gross apostasy. Incomplete devotion will lead to gross apostasy. He followed God, but just kind of like a little bit. Not like David. Not like the man after God's heart. He followed him, but not like David. He kind of left a lot of room for stuff to creep in. An incomplete devotion will lead to gross apostasy. Let me show you the fate of Amaziah in 2 Chronicles. Stick something in 2 Kings and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 25. Let me show you what Amaziah did. Because he wasn't all the way in. 2 Chronicles 25, 14. 2 Chronicles 25, 14. Now it came to pass after that Amaziah was come from the slaughter of the Edomites, so he just whacked these enemies, that he brought the gods of the children of Seir, that's Edom, and set them up to be his gods, uh uh-oh, and bowed down himself before them and burned incense unto them. So Amaziah, he starts his reign by following God a little bit, and he ends his reign not following God at all, actually bowing down to the idols of the enemies that he's just defeated. Why? Because incomplete devotion will lead to gross apostasy. If you're not all the way in, if you don't worship God all the way, you leave room to fall away. If you're not convinced about who Jesus Christ is, what salvation is all about, why that book is preserved, uh, what the second coming sort of looks like, that it's happening. Like if you don't have these doctrines down and you're not fully persuaded, guess what? Somebody's going to talk you out of it and you're going to end up being apostate before you know it. A lot of the great heresies that grow up today and have taken hold on America are really people that had a background maybe very similar to yours but they weren't convinced or they had a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge and somebody got in there, whether it was the devil or another person, and they end up being a train wreck doctrinally because, I'll say it again, incomplete devotion will lead to gross apostasy. No man can serve two masters. And if you're not all the way in, you're going to fall out. So you better make sure you get all the way in and not like one foot out here and one foot in God. If you're going to follow God, what did, uh, what, did, um, what did Elijah say? If the Lord be God, follow Him, right? If He's God, follow Him. Don't follow Him afar off like Peter. Don't warm yourself at the devil's fire like Peter, because when you follow Him afar off, you end up cursing like Peter did. You make a big mistake because incomplete devotion, you think I want us to get that? Incomplete devotion will lead to gross apostasy. Look at verse 15, and look what the Lord says. Wherefore the anger of the Lord, can you blame him, was kindled against Amaziah, and he sent unto him a prophet, which said unto him, Why hast thou sought after the gods of the people, which could not deliver their own people out of thine hand? In other words, 
Why would you follow a loser that God defeated for you anyway? So many of God's people are bowing down to the losers that God delivered them from. Whether it's the God of sex, drugs, whatever it is, popularity, money, right? God, sin, God delivers you from stuff. And then like Amaziah, we just bow down to them, give ourselves over to them, offer things unto to them. And God says, why are you worshiping the losers, right? I delivered you from them. You say, how did Amaziah end up that way? Incomplete devotion leads to gross apostasy. He didn't have it settled in his heart. And as time went on, he fell out. And brethren, if you don't get some stuff settled in your heart about who Jesus Christ is, why that book is true, what salvation is all about, if you need to sit with somebody and go through discipleship to get this stuff squared away, do it. Because if you've got this foggy, fuzzy understanding, someone's going to knock on your door, catch you on the street, and get your ear. And if you don't get all the way in and understand what the Bible says about the things of God, guess what? You're going to get talked out of it. And when you get talked out of it, you're going to end up being a train wreck somewhere. Incomplete devotion will lead to gross apostasy. Go to 2 Kings chapter 14. That is not a good start. I did not start flying on the first point. I got to move. 2 Kings 14. Let me show you another guy. Next guy. Azariah, sometimes also called Uzziah, all right? 2 Kings 14, 21. 2 Kings 14, 21 speaks about Azariah or Uzziah. And it says right there, And all the people of Judah took Azariah, which was 16 years old, so he starts pretty young, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. And you say, what's the lesson that this king teaches us? Very easy, right? Don't overstep your bounds, O king. Don't overstep your bounds. You got to know your place. That's what that's exactly what Uzziah teaches us right here. Go go to 2 Chronicles 26. Let me show you Uzziah's end or Azariah. Their names are interchangeable, Azariah or Uzziah, he's called both. All right? 2 Chronicles 26. Now Uzziah, Azariah, did some great things. He did some great things for God, built up the war machines, kind of like fortified Israel, but he got a little full of himself. He had done so much for God, whatever that is, that he started thinking that, you know, he had a special past from God. He had a special relationship with God. He didn't have to respect the boundaries that God gave, and he overstepped those boundaries, and God had to put him and humble him. Look at 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16. The Bible says, But when he was strong... You see verse 15, he made in it Jerusalem engines. These are engines of war. And he really fortified Jerusalem. And in 16, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. Ah, pride. Ah, pride always gets a good man. Pride always gets him. Do something good for God. Watch out, man. Watch out. Devil's coming up behind you to biff you in the back of the head and knock you down the stairs with pride. Watch it. When he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him and with him fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. And they withstood Uzziah the king and said unto him, It appertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord. Who was supposed to burn incense? The priests. He was a king. He had done good, but he forgot his place. He forgot his role. He forgot his office. And he overstepped those bounds. He was a king performing the role of a priest. And God says, you better respect my boundaries, man. And look what God did to him. Verse 19. Then Uzziah was wroth and had a censor. He got so puffed up with pride. He's there trying to do something good for God. Don't you see him trying to do something good? But God is as concerned with the methods as He is as the destination. The ends don't justify the means with God. The ends are part of the means. He says, I I mean, I could take a rock and tie a track to a rock and throw it through people's windows today all over Homedale and Hazlitt and Aberdeen. Guess what? That would be the wrong way to give out the gospel because God's concerned with the methods. And Uzziah's like, I want to offer this incense. He says, that's not your role. That's not your place. That's not your thing to do. And Uzziah, look what happens to him. It says... um, Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense, and while he was wroth... Now, if Uzziah had hit the deck, apologized, and probably walked out of there, I bet God would have shown him mercy. But his pride got him so swelled up, it says, 
the leprosy even rose up in his forehead. So if you get too full of yourself, the Lord knows how to humble you. For everyone that exalted himself shall be abased, brought low. And Uzziah ends up reigning in solitude until the day of his death. If you look at the rest of the chapter, he ends up reigning, look at the end of 21, judging the people of the land, but he's a leper until the day of his death. He has to run out of the king's house, and he's just uh, a sad end to his story. Don't overstep your bounds. Go back to 2 Kings 14, continuing with my low-level flying. All right, I want to get to some really good stuff at the end. At least I think good stuff. 2 Kings 14 again. Here's another guy. This guy's in the north. Amaziah and Azariah were in the south. But uh, Jeroboam II, all right, I think I spelled it wrong. Jeroboam II is in the north. And there he is in verse 23 of 2 Kings 14. And it says right there, it says, um, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, sorry, I spelled that wrong, Jeroboam, I always mess that up, Jeroboam, um, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria and reigned forty and one years, and he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath unto the sea of the plain, according to the word of the Lord of God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah. Hey, there he is, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Hefer. Here is the lesson that Jeroboam II gives us. Material prosperity does not equal spiritual growth. Material prosperity does not equal spiritual growth. Do you please notice in verse number 25 that Jeroboam got some of Israel's land back. That's a good thing. Got it back from the enemy. Got some of the property back. But he never got the people back to the Lord of the land. He got some of the land back, but never got Israel back to the Lord of the land. And can I tell you, material growth, money in the bank account, beautiful building, does not mean spiritual growth. Right? We could have a beautiful building, and please pray about that. I would like to have a building. Um, uh, We could have a big congregation and see all this size and all this affluence. Can I tell you, it's no indicator of the spiritual growth of a person, a congregation, a church. It impresses our eyes, I know. When you walk in, you say, oh, look at the Sunday school wing, and look at the auditorium, and look at this. And I know the flesh goes, even among Bible believers, I'll, I'll say amen for you, even among Bible believers, you look and say, oh, look at the building, because mine eye affecteth mine heart. And we look on the outward appearance, because that's what man does. And God says, hey, slow down, back the truck up. None of that stuff, though it could be used for God, and we would use it if God gave it to us, none of that is a sign or an evidence that you've grown spiritually at all. <laughs> because Jeroboam, he got the land back, the people were as rotten as hell still. So, Amen. And please note, just note if you want a little historical context, verse 25, Jonah is prophesying during this time. So you see where Jonah falls in history. I know Jonah's out there in the book of Jonah, but this is where he is. Jonah, verse 25, there's Jonah. You kind of see now why Jonah hated the Assyrians. Because the Assyrians were giving trouble to his people Israel, right? And now you see when he gets up there and he has to go to Nineveh and preach to Nineveh, and he doesn't want to preach to Nineveh because he hated the Assyrians because the Assyrians have been ransacking his people and trying to steal his land. Gives you a little bit of context why Jonah didn't want to go preach to these people. All right, let's go to chapter 15 now. And here is, I guess, the second movement. Of, or, or point of tonight's lesson. The first one was the downward spiral continues, just some of these kings and their assorted lessons. But when we get into 15 to 17, I want to show you here, and I'm not going to write it, so I'll just say it. Um, the kingdom of Israel ends in anarchy and assassination. It just, it ends right here. In, I want to see, before it actually ends, it's chaos, man. It's chaos. I'm not going to read all these verses. But if you look at verses 8 to 10, you got a king, Zechariah, wicked king. You know how he gets deposed? He's assassinated. He's assassinated by a man by the name of Shalom in verses 8 to 10. And so verses 13 to 14, Shalom. You see verse 13? 
Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 9 and 30th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month, golly, 30 whole days. And guess what? He gets assassinated by a man by the name of Menahem. That's two so far, right? Zechariah gets assassinated. Shalom gets assassinated. Let me show you about this guy, Menahem. Verse 16. Then uh, Menahem smote Tifsah and all that were therein and the coast thereof from Tirzah because they opened not to him. Watch this. Therefore he smote it and all the women therein that were with child he ripped up. This guy is a cruel monster. Jump to verse number um, 17. Uh, No, jump to verse number 19. And Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver. This guy, Menahem, is a guy that needs to be taken out to the back and just beaten, right? He ripped these women up because they wouldn't let him in the city, and then he's a coward when the Assyrians come to him and he tries to pay them off. He's an awful, awful king. He rules for 10 years. And in verse number 23, if you want to read while I talk, verse number 23 to 25, a guy by the name of Pekiah becomes king. And guess what happens to Pekiah? He gets assassinated, verse number 25, by Pekah. Pekah was one of the captains in his army. And one of the captains in his own army takes him out. You see the way God writes the Bible? Pekiah kills Pekah, Amaziah, Azariah, you see how God make you know how God lays the Bible out? So you gotta really want the truth if you want to find it. You really gotta search and dig, because God's not, He'll make salvation easy, but if you really want to understand some things, you gotta search it out. And God lays the Bible out to purposely kind of put little pitfalls in there. Pekiah is assassinated by Pika. I mean, he just like makes you dizzy sometimes. And uh, Pekiah becomes king, he's assassinated. Now look what happens in verse 27. In the two and fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel and Samaria and reigned twenty years. And he did that which is evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, came Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and took Ijin and abel meth and Genoa, and Kadesh, and Hazer, and Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and carried them captive to Assyria. Please notice, Pekah steals the throne, so God lets the enemy steal the land. You see that? The enemy comes in and steals some of the land. He says, you want to steal the throne? I'm going to let the enemy steal some of your land. You know why? Because God is not mocked. You'll see in this book, there is a law of sowing and reaping in the Bible, and it comes really to sad fruition in the book of 2 Kings. You can reject God to get what you want, but when you reject God to get what you want, you lose what you need. And this guy says, I don't care what I got to do. If I got to kill this guy, I want to be king. God says, you want to steal the throne? I'm going to have the enemy steal some land. Amen, Brother Pat. You think about that. You guys, sometimes Christians will do what they need to do to get what they want, and they think God's all hunky-dory. God's still smiling on them. God's still going to, you know, beckon when they call. You know what? You better be careful with how you think you're mocking God. Uh, you guys are the choir. I'm preaching to the other people at home. You guys are the choir at home. But, uh, you know, it's been, sometimes we Christians, we get a little spiritually stunad. God is not mocked. You better realize who you're trifling with, Christian. You better realize the Holy One of Israel is up there, the one that dares not even, won't even look upon iniquity. And we drink it like water sometimes, and Pika just thinks, I'm going to draw my sword and whack this guy and take the throne, and it's all going to be okay. It ain't all going to be okay. You're going to lose something in the process, and you want to trespass God's ordinances and step all over God's book so you can get that guy or that girl or that money or that this or that that, and you think God's going to just sit up there and beam on you. No, sir, no, ma'am. God says, I'm going to have the enemy come and take something. And that's what happens right there. That's three assassinations in about 14 years. Three assassinations in 14 years. What do we say? No, God. No peace. No God, no peace. Chaos. Look at verse, chapter 15, verse 30. Here's the last king of Israel, the last king of the north. And Hosea, the son of Rila, 
made a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, and smote him and slew him and reigned in his stead. It's fitting that Hosea, the last king of Israel, gets his power by killing Pekah. The once great nation of Israel ends in murder, bloodshed, and violence. You know why? Remember the first lesson many months ago? This is a political kingdom. This isn't a spiritual kingdom. You know why it ends in bloodshed, murder, and violence? Because it's a physical, political kingdom that people are fighting over. The kingdom of heaven. The physical kingdom on earth. You know what I bet some of those Israelites thought? They probably thought, this could never happen to us. We're God's people. This could never happen to us until they turned from God. And be very careful when you sit there as a believer and say, oh, that could never happen to me. You turn from God, you're not, you have no idea what you're capable of becoming when you turn away from God and you walk away from the truth. You become like these people. Amen? Just take, take a sober lesson from that. Don't ever think it can't happen to you because when you think it can't happen to you, it does Amen. when you turn away from God. Now look at 2 Kings 16.6. Here's just a little nugget, a little tidbit for you. It has nothing to do with what I'm saying. But 2 Kings 16.6 is the first mention of the word Jew. The first mention of the word Jew is in 2 Kings 16.6. It's the descendants of Judah. Those are who they're referencing in that first reference mention of Jew. All right, let's go to 2 Kings 17. And if you want a heading for 2 Kings 17, it is the end of Israel. The ten northern tribes, Israel, I don't even know why, there's nothing to write. <laughs> I just feel this pull sometimes. Ten northern tribes go into Assyrian captivity. Second Kings 17.6. You should have this verse circled or highlighted or noted. This is a key moment in your Bible. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of Assyria, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria and placed them in Hala and in Habor by the river of Gozan in the cities of the Medes. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, sends his forces. Sennacherib is a picture of the Antichrist, but here he's a literal king. He sends his forces they overtake Israel, and the date the historians give it, approximately 721 B.C. Those numbers are man's numbers, but we'll use them because they're generally accepted. But around 721 B.C., we see this happen. Horrible day. Could you imagine if, if America fell? Right? That's what it's like. A once God-fearing nation being overtaken by external enemies. We say, perish the thought. Don't you think they thought they were indestructible? When they walked with God, don't you think they thought many a thing an American thinks today? Oh, that could never happen to us. You watch. You pass those bills. You keep spitting in God's face. You watch what God allows external enemies to do to you. God is not mocked. Israel is an object lesson to that. And in verses 7 to 12, the Lord, and I'm not going to read it, He lays out the reasons for their punishment. He doesn't sneak up on them. He says, here's why this is happening. You know why? Because God's a good father. You know what a good father does? When he lays the spanking on, he says, this is why you're getting it, son. This is why you're getting it, honey. You're getting it for this, 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 and this. And God says, here's why you're getting it, Israel, for this, 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 and this. And in verse 13, look what God says. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers, saying, turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. He's saying, I'm against your rebellion. I'm trying to turn you around. Isn't that what God does for us? Praise His name. When we're going the wrong way, God doesn't just let us walk off the cliff. He sends a preacher. He sends a Christian friend. He sends His convicting Holy Spirit. He says, hey, turn around. Turn ye and keep my law. It'll be better for you. But look what Israel was. Notwithstanding, they would not hear. That's why they're called stiff neck, right? Mm, right? They stiffen their neck and harden their neck, right? They would not hear, but harden their necks. They wouldn't turn, right? Because you turn with your neck, right? You turn, but they wouldn't turn. They harden their neck. I'm just going to keep on going this way. I'm not going to listen to that prophet. I'm not going to listen to that preacher. I'm not going to listen to that message. I'm just going to keep going after what I want. Yeah, harden their necks like to the neck of their fathers that did not believe in the Lord their God. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he testified against them. And they followed vanity 
became vain and went after the heathen that were round about them concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. And they left all the commandments of the Lord because you start by just leaving some of them and then you just leave the whole thing. And made them molten images, even two calves. There's Jeroboam's system right there. And made a grove and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. Oh, it gets worse. And they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire and use divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil. You see the reckless abandon. They're just jumping all the way in now. Sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. God tried to warn them like he tries to warn us, but they were disobedient, they were willful, they became reprobate. Can I just say this to everybody, including myself? Stubbornness is not a spiritual attribute. It's not one of the nine fruit of the Spirit. I keep searching that list. Stubbornness is not one of them. I've I've turned it upside down. I even went to the Greek. No, I didn't. But you know, it's not there. Stubbornness is not there. God wants you to be soft, pliable, movable, dust that the wind of His Spirit can just move around the way He wants to move you around. But some of us get so stubborn and so set that I know better than God, and God says, i got to break you now. I could have just turned you, but now i got to break you. And in verse 18 to 23, uh, just jump to verse 23, it says He did all this, uh, verse 20 actually, and the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel. Israel rejected God, so God rejected them. You reap what you sow. You reject God, God says, I'm going to reject you. And here's the very sad lesson. Look why. 21. For he rent Israel from the house of of David, and they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drave Israel from following the Lord and made them sin a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did. They departed not from them. God says, you know what the root of this was? You let Jeroboam, he set up that system, and you followed it, and you never repented of that false system of worship that Jeroboam set up. You never got it right, and it grew, and it festered, and it drove you so far from me that I cast you out. See, what's the lesson? If you don't deal with your sin, it'll carry you away. If you don't deal with it, it starts out small. But if you don't deal with it, It ends up taking you far. Our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Right? He shall be taken with the cords of his sins, the Bible says of a man and his vices, because you don't deal with it. We're all going to make mistakes. Deal with it. Get it right. Because Jeroboam's sins festered and were a plague to Israel until they ultimately had to be rejected by God. Sad enough? Scary enough? Tragic enough? I find this very sad, this book. It's like watching, you know, the end of an empire, just like a very sad collapse. Now, Second Kings, uh, we're gonna now we're gonna really start to fly. Second Kings eighteen to twenty-two deal with two kings in Judah that were good kings, but they were too little too late. Hezekiah and Josiah. These are two great kings. I mean, next to David, Hezekiah and Josiah were great kings. But you know what? They were too little, too late. Look at 2 Kings 18. Look at verse number 4. Look what Hezekiah did. He gets in there. He's 25 years old when he begins to reign. And he look what the first thing he does is. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan, which just means serpent of brass. First thing he does is he destroys the idol. Do you remember what chapter Israel started worship, made the gold, made the serpent of brass? Numbers 21. That was 774 years before this happened. So for almost 774 years, Israel is worshiping an idol, worshiping a physical thing that you know, was a remnant of a deliverance that God gave. Amazing how messed up they got, right? It would be like one of us like following you know, the Shroud of Turin or uh, looking at um, you know, a piece of a cross. Or What happened? 
Okay, keep going. Yeah, well, you throw me off when you sit there and type. Type. Um, let go, let's go. Let's go down to eighteen five. Let me show you some things about Hezekiah. Hezekiah eighteen five. First thing he did, he trusted in the Lord. That's a good start. That's Hezekiah's faith, right? That's where your reign should start. That's where Hezekiah's reign start. Believing. Verse number six. For he clave to the Lord. That's Hezekiah's faithfulness. That's how you grow, right? When you get some stick. You got to believe. You got to start with faith. But then you got to have some faithfulness. You got to have some stick. You got to keep going to church. Keep reading the Bible. Keep praying. And look what happens in verse seven. And the Lord was with him and he prospered with us whoever he went forth. You've got Hezekiah's faith, that's where he starts. Hezekiah's faithfulness, that's how you grow. And then you get Hezekiah's fruit, that's how you become successful when you get some faith and some faithfulness together, and that's how you start to prosper. Please notice in verse number 10, please notice in verse number 10 that it is in Hezekiah's reign, right? Hezekiah's reign in the... I'm so thoroughly thrown off right now. During Hezekiah's reign in the south, the north goes into captivity. Right? During Hezekiah's reign in the south, the north goes into captivity. Look at verse number 13. Verse number 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. Please notice that Sennacherib, king of Assyria now, he's coming after Judah. He's coming after, I think it's the port. The port didn't work when we started today. It was fuzzing out. You might want to try the USB port. That was what, that was not working. All right. Um, I'm sorry, guys. I'm trying to concentrate here. I get really thrown off. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, comes after Judah. What does that tell me? He's taken the north. Now he's coming after the south. You know why? Because the enemy is not satisfied with just a little bit. The enemy won't be satisfied until he comes and takes the whole stinking thing. That's just a sad, sad truth. The enemy is not satisfied until he's taken everything. You give an inch, and he will take the ruler. You give an inch, and he'll take beyond a mile. First Peter 5.8 says, Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may. What? Devour. Devour. That means to eat up. That means to consume entirely. He's not content with just your joy. He wants your peace. When he gets your peace, he might want to take your health. When he gets your health, he might want to take your life. If he can't get your life, he might want to take your spouse. Once he gets your spouse, then he wants your kids. If he gets your family, then he wants your church. He's a roaring lion, man. He's got like a bottomless appetite. And Sennacherib says, oh, I got, I got Israel? Let me go after Judah. He starts knocking on Judah's door because the enemy wants all of it. He, wants, he won't stop until he's taken everything. Some of you think like, oh, I'll just go, I'll just, I'll just, you know, I'll just compromise here. He's not satisfied with that. He wants everything. He wants, if he can't get your soul, he wants to take everything else good that you got. Look at verse chapter 19, verse 35. Chapter 19, verse 35. Chapter 19, verse 35. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out. Now Hezekiah cries unto the Lord. And it says, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians and a hundred, fourscore, and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Hezekiah cries unto the Lord, and God gives them deliverance. It's a great picture of the second advent. Because you got Sennacherib. He's a type of the Antichrist. He's the Assyrian. The Antichrist is called the Assyrian. Micah chapter 5 calls on that in a number of places in Isaiah. And the angel of the Lord goes out that either was Jesus Christ or it's a picture of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is called the angel of the Lord and he goes out and he crushes all the Antichrist armies. That's what happens at the second advent. You got a preview of it right there. Chapter 20. Chapter 20. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, oh, I'm doing good, uh, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. So Hezekiah gets sick, and he cries unto the Lord again. And in verses 4 to 6, the Lord gives Hezekiah 15 more years. And you say, well, that's great. 
God gave him 15 more years. But you know that in those 15 years, Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh, who was probably the worst king Judah saw. Horrible king. Probably the worst king that Judah saw. Look at verse 21. It says, And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. Manasseh was horrible. Look at 21.1. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. Manasseh ends up being one of the most wicked kings in all of Israel's history and probably the most wicked king in Judah's history. Look at 3 to 6. For he built up again the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, will I put my name And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke provoke him to anger. Wow, that's wicked. That's wicked. His daddy was a good daddy. He had a good king. Hezekiah was his dad, and Hezekiah was a good king, and Manasseh went so far down the road. Go to Isaiah chapter 3, would you? You know what Manasseh becomes, starts becoming a fulfillment of? A warning that Isaiah gave. How old was Manasseh when he began to reign? Twelve. Twelve. And it said right there he had his mother right next to him. See that? And his mother's name was Hephzibah. Go to Isaiah chapter 3. God gave a warning in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 4. God gave a warning and it said, Isaiah 3, 4. See it? Manasseh is the fulfillment of this warning. And I will give children to be their princes. Manasseh was 12. He was a child. And babes shall rule over them. It's a sign of judgment from God. Verse 12, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. O my people, they which lead thee, cause thee to err, and destroy the way of thy path. This is a prophecy of warning that you start seeing fulfilled in Manasseh. We got young kids taking the throne and their mama right next to them. God says you're going to have children oppressing you and women ruling over you. That's a sign of a nation going into apostasy. It's a really good sign of a house gone sideways too. When the kids are running the parents, that is out of order. I got, you got people at work, I got people at work. The kids, the, the nuts are running the asylum. The kids are running the parents. The, you go to the stores, you watch, watch them shopping. Mm-hmm. They're probably putting whiskey in their bottle, just hope they're inebriated enough that they can get through Target without them like turning into Godzilla and tearing the place apart, right? Because the kids are running the show, and mama is running the house, and you got a problem. Right? It's out of order. And that's what you see here on a national scale. That was just a little extra for you on a domestic scale. Right? But God has an order. God is a God of order. And when you get that order out of order, you get chaos. You know what a great lesson is? Now, Hezekiah got his 15 years. He said, hey, as long as there's peace and truth in my days, as long as it's good for me, Hezekiah ended like a bit of a fool. You know why? He teaches us a very sad lesson. Don't want more than God has given you. Be content. Hezekiah, was a good run. Set your house in order. No, 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 I want more, God. All right, I'm going to give you more, but you had Manasseh in that more. You know, Manasseh reigned longer than any king. Interesting. What a merciful God. Let one of the most wicked kings have one of the longest reigns. That stuff makes me scratch my head. 22 and 23 now, 2 Kings, go back there. Second Kings 22. Here's Josiah. Again, Josiah is a great king. 
He tries to do well, right as well, but sadly it's too little too late. 2 Kings 22.8. Let me show you how bad it is now under Josiah. <laughs> and Hilkiah the high priest said unto Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. It had gone so bad that the people of God had lost the word of God in God's house. Isn't that sad? That's not like leaving your Bible behind in church. <laughs> That's like you lost the Bible. You lost the book. You lost the law. Right where it should have been preeminent is gone. That's like the state of probably 99% of churches around the world today. Where the Bible should preeminent, be preeminent, it's just a book of marital advice and amateur psychology for people. Not thus saith the Lord. Now watch, here's where it gets a little bit interesting. 20, go to chapter 23. Let me show you some other things that were going on here. Why God is so disgusted. 23.4. And the king commanded Helkiah the high priest. Here's Josiah trying to clean out the temple. And the priests of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord. Watch it. This is the temple of God now, Jehovah God. All the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove, and for all the host of heaven, and he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. They had given themselves over to Baal worship. Baal was the sun god. They'd given themselves over to worship of the sun god. They're worshiping the sun god, and Baal the sun god, he's got a wife that reflects his light like the moon. Her name is Ashtoreth or Astarte. Sounds like Easter. All right, uh, or Asherah or Iris or sometimes Aphrodite or some of the things. She's like the moon. She reflects his light. That's a perfect imitation of Christ in his church. Christ is the sun and we're supposed to be the moon that reflects his light. But the devil is a copycatter because everything God does, the devil tries to imitate. He shows up as Baal, the sun god, and he's got a wife named Ashtoreth who's supposed to reflect his light like the moon. And that's what's going on over here, man. That's what's going on in Judah. This lady right here, she's called the queen of heaven. Some of you used to sing about her in the Catholic Church, Right? Jeremiah 44 talks about how the children of Judah were worshiping her by making cakes to offer to her. We used to crown her every May back where I went to school. We'd parade her out on a little pillow. We'd sing songs about her. Wasn't Mary. Oh, if Mary was up in heaven and could see all this stuff, she'd throw up. She'd say, what are you doing? I said, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Mary said, the Mary, the Bible said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. Luke 1.46. That's not Mary. That's Mary, Mary, quite contrary. That is not Mary. That is the queen of heaven masquerading as Mary. Because the Mary of the Bible would never allow you to kiss her feet or crown her in May, or sing songs about her, and pray to her at the hour of your death, amen. No way. Not Mary would always point you to her son. (laughs) Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. (laughs) That's the only command Mary ever gave in the Bible, right? This is what's going on. She's worshipped the queen of heaven. Now here's what's going to get interesting. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. And he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal to the sun and to the moon and to the planets and to all the host of heaven. This idolatry we're talking about, people, involves the worship of the heavenly bodies It's getting us right back to Genesis 6 again. Well, they want those sons of God to come down. We're going back to Genesis 6 where those sons of God were coming down. They want them to come down again so they're worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets. It's like Genesis 6 and Genesis 11 all over again. You get to the book of Acts, you get in the book of Acts, you got people worshiping planets in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, some people are worshiping Mercury. 
Some people worshiping Jupiter, the image that fell from Jupiter. The priest has the image that fell from Jupiter. That's Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 17. Paul is on Mars Hill. Mars is a planet. It's a Greek god, too. It's named after that Greek god, that planet. So you got people now worshiping these things up there. It hasn't changed. Do you know what NASA's budget was this year? $30 billion. You know what that did for your pocket? Jack squat. You know what they did to reduce the price of gas? Jack squat. You know what they did to lower the price of bread and make your country safer? Absolutely nothing. Why the obs- $30 billion? Put me in office. We could repurpose that $30 billion. You want to see equity? You want to see a redistribution of wealth? I'll take your $30 billion, Buzz Armstrong, and I'll give it to all these other people that actually could do something with it other than shoot up rockets and send up signals to God knows who up there. Why the obsession with outer space? We don't belong up there. Man has no business up there. You read Genesis 1, we're given dominion over the fish, over the sea, over this, but not outer space. We're not supposed to go up there. You know who's up there? Leviathan's up there. He's swimming up there. We got no business going up there. Spiritual wickedness in high places. There's something up there, and it's not the satellite. There's something up there, and you're not supposed to be up there. Now, if that didn't give you a little chill, let's get a little weirder now, right? Let's get a little weirder, all right? In the worship of, and I'll be wise, in the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth, there has to be sex involved. They're fertility gods. That's who Baal and Ashtoreth were. And I was reading, uh, I was reading a book today, and I just pulled out this quote. Believing the union of Baal and Asherah produce fertility, their worshipers engage in immoral unions to cause the gods to join together, ensuring good harvest. That stuff was in the worship service. That's how you appease those gods. Because when you came together, it made the gods do that, and that would then ensure a good harvest. You know what this gave up to? That's where you start reading about things like temple prostitution in 1 Samuel. The people that would, the women that would hang out outside the temple and lay with people. That's all coming from some of this idolatry. Look at verse number 7. You say, no, couldn't be all that perversion around the temple. And he break down the houses of the Sodomites? that were by the house of the Lord, what are those boys doing over there? Verse number 10. What are the Sodomites doing there? Perversion. Verse 11, and I'll leave this alone before you get more uncomfortable. Verse 11, And he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entering in of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathanmelech, the chamberlain which was in the suburbs, uh, and burned the chariots of the sun with fire. Why did Josiah have to get rid of the horses for the sun? Not just perversion, not just same, not just homo, but everything else, right? Bestiality. Going on right there. You know why? Because Baal... Baal doesn't care what your preference is. Baal doesn't care. Love is love. Right? And idolatry, idolatry like this, you know where it leads to? Sexual perversion. America. And the more we become idolaters, the more sex-crazed and sex-perverted this country becomes. The two go together. They go together. 2 Kings 23.10. 23.10. It says, now watch this. Watch this now. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. Eli, can you put one of those on each table if you don't mind? I got a, I got a visual for you here. I want you to see this. Right? I, don't, I didn't make one for everybody to take home so you can you know, trade them among your friends. All right? But uh, it's an illustration here. It's like a 
uh, an archaeologist, you know, historians rendering. But we've got all this activity in honor of Baal and Ashtoreth. You know what it means you're going to have? You're going to have a lot of babies that really weren't wanted. They're just the byproduct of some idolatrous worship. Do you know what they would do with those little ones? They'd take them down to Topheth, which is near Jerusalem, and the Valley of Hinnom is where Gehenna was, this, basically this trash heap, and they'd have these idols set up. People say it looked like that. Moloch, face looks like a bull, doesn't it? And that, that Moloch would have his arms outstretched, bring me the children, give me the children, suffer the little ones to come unto me and forbid them not. And you see that little hole in there? That little hole like that little oven? They'd stick that baby in there and pass it through the fire. And that's what's going on among God's people. And you think that could never happen again in our civilized society. You haven't read the Bible very well. Uh, You hear all this stuff about rings and what people are doing to kids and people getting abducted. I would fancy a lot of that stuff is going on very much so in the sophisticated 2022. Because the only thing men don't learn from history is that they don't learn from history. You know what the Bible says? God requireth that which is past. If it happened back then, it's going to happen now. I'll leave it there. And God, if you look at, I'm not going to read it, but if you look at Leviticus 18, Leviticus chapter 20, God was warning about that perversion and that idolatry and passing your kids through the fire. He wrapped them all up in the same bucket. Leviticus 20, you can read it. I won't because it's, it's a little racy. But Leviticus 20, he talks about idolatry. He talks about perversion. And he talks about don't make your kids pass through the fire because they go together. When that idolatry leads you into that perversion, the children are going to suffer. He'd been warning them for millennia. You know what God said? He warned them. He said, that's what the Canaanites are about. Don't let that be what you're about. And when it got to be what the people of Israel are about, God said, I've had enough. I'm done. And that's when God starts cutting them off. Chapter 24. Jehoiachin is cut off. Jeconiah is cut off. The king is cut off. God cuts off the kingly line. Look at 24.1. 24.1. I'm almost done. 24.1. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That's not what, yeah, don't go there. That's not what I want. Right, I want you to go to uh, Jeremiah 22. That's what I want. Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22. Wild book, huh? Nice little religious stories to make you a better citizen. No, man. That Bible's got some... Bible, that book has everything in it. Right. If there's anything going on in the universe, it's in there. Amen. You just got to search it out. It's Jeremiah 22. I'll just say this, and then I'll leave off this. I won't get into any conspiracy theories. But you know, people talk about these pedophile rings going on, and people laugh and say, Pizzagate, ha, 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 that could never happen. They would never be involved in that. Really? Really? I wouldn't be so sure. I wouldn't be so sure there's not some spiritual wickedness in some very... You know how many kids go missing every year? A lot of them. Never found again. Mm. Watch that book, man. It's got the answer. Jeremiah 22. Community strike. Thanks, Jeff Epstein. All right, uh, Jeremiah 22, verse number 1. All right, thus saith the Lord... Go down to the house of the king of Judah. Notice God has pronounced a judgment now on the house of Judah. What was the house of Judah? The kingly line. The tribe from which the king was supposed to come. And look what he says in verse number 28 of Jeremiah 22, which is lining up with our second king's study. 28, is this man Kaniah? a despised idol. This is the Jehoiachin, also called Jeconiah. Here God calls him Coniah because he's taking the prefix Jah, meaning God, away from him. And he says, is this man, Jeconiah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel wherein is no pleasure? Wherefore are they cast out, he and his seed, and are cast into a land which they know not? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. 
Thus saith the Lord, Write ye this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days, for no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon a throne of David and ruling anymore in Judah. God is saying, I am cutting off Kaniah's line. Nobody from Kaniah's line is going to rule my people ever again. Now go to Matthew chapter 1. This is a problem. Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy of Christ. And look at Matthew 1.11. Matthew 1.11. Here's the genealogy of Christ, the genealogy of the king. And in Matthew 1.11 it says, And Josias, that's Josiah, begat Jeconias, that's Coniah, and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. This is a problem because there's Jeconiah in the line of Christ. But Christ, the ruler, couldn't come from Jeconiah. That's why Jesus Christ didn't come through the line of Joseph in Matthew 1. He came through Mary in Luke 3. Mary's genealogy is given in Luke 3, and he doesn't go through Solomon. He goes through Nathan, and he gets the king traced all the way back, but he has to go a different way, and that's how God gets Jesus Christ to be the ruler because he's not a descendant of Coniah. He's a descendant from another branch of David's line. Pretty wise God, huh? So when you want the genealogy of Christ, don't go to Matthew. Matthew 1 can only take you so far. Jesus Christ's line goes through Mary, Luke 3, 31. So the kings are cut off, and then let's go back to 2 Kings 25. And we're just ready about to circle the wagons here. I'm really close to done. I'm just going to rush through this here. 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25. Here is the end. If you want a heading for 2 Kings 25, the end of of the kingdom of heaven. The end of the kingdom of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar comes down. The north has already been taken away. 721 BC. They're in Assyrian captivity. And Judah's left. And now Judah is taken away. And that is the end of the kingdom of heaven. The end of this rule on earth. We're still waiting for it. And I want you to see that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has three deportations. Three deportations. 2 Chronicles 36.6, Jehoiakim is carried into Babylon in 606 B.C. That's the first one. That's when Daniel goes into captivity. 2 Chronicles 36.6, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, is carried into Babylon 606 B.C. That's when Daniel gets taken. Second one is in 2 Chronicles 36.10. Jehoiachin is carried to Babylon in 597 B.C. That's when Ezekiel goes into captivity. And in 2 Kings 25.7 is when Zedekiah, the last king, the king that God didn't install in 586 B.C., is taken out and his eyes are taken out. uh, 2 Kings 25.7. And they slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with fetters of brass and carried him to Babylon. Verse 9, and he burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every man's house burnt he with fire. Jump down to verse number 13, uh, 14. There's where he's at the end of verse 14. He's taking away all the vessels of the temple and carry them into Babylon. That's your third and final attack of Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah is deposed, 586 B.C. Jerusalem is burned, the temple is destroyed, and the vessels are carried away to Babylon. And that's where you get the book of Lamentations of Jeremiah weeping over watching his city in ashes. Blackness. Destruction. Psalm 78. We've got two verses left. Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Making sense so far? Just about done. Psalm 78. Psalm 78, look at verse number 56. Psalm 78 is a history of Israel, told as a dark saying. Psalm 78, verse number 56, God starts to fill in some gaps here as to why he ended the kingdom of heaven. Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High God and kept not his testimonies but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel. 
watch it, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among them, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. God is finished with the kingdom of heaven until John the Baptist steps out on the stage and says, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is no kingdom of heaven in the Old Testament until it's offered to Israel and they miss it and it's still gone. We're still waiting for the kingdom of heaven to show up. Until the rightful king comes, then the kingdom of heaven comes with them. Big ideas from the book of 2 Kings. Go to 2 Chronicles 36. I only got one verse here. 2 Chronicles 36, last verse. 2 Chronicles 36, 16. Here are three big ideas, three takeaways from the book of 2 Kings. Number one, this one I've said a few times tonight. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. The book is like a sorry object lesson of that. If you're going to sow to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. I mean, it's all over the book. Pick any one of these dumb kings and look what they reap. They reap nothing good. Nobody goes against God and ends up any better in the book of 2 Kings. I think that's because nobody goes against God and ends up any better. I know we always think we're going to be the exception, but God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. Going to destroy something. That's the first big lesson. Second big lesson. Your sins affect others. Your sins affect everyone around you. We see that in the north. We see that in the south. You read about the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, the sins of Jeroboam, until God says, I sent you to Assyria because of the sins of Jeroboam. Because your sins affect the ones around you. And then you read 2 Kings 24.3. It says that when God's getting ready to take out Manasseh, right over there in 2 Kings 24.3, that he take out Judah, I'm sorry, he says it's because of the sins of Manasseh. Manasseh made a big mess of things, brought in all this idolatry, and yes, when Manasseh was in affliction, he besought God and God had mercy on him. Amen. But the damage he did still affected other people. You can make it right with God, but you go like a train wreck. Guess what? The carnage is still in your wake. Even though you made it right with God, you still made a mess of things. And there are consequences to choices and decisions that you made. Amen. And here's the last one. Second Chronicles 36, 16. If you refuse to repent, you will pay the price. In this life or the next, you will pay the price. 2 Chronicles 36. If you're not saved, guess what? Some men's sins are open beforehand going forth to judgment and some they follow after. Right? Some Christians, man, they live like, and you look at them and go, they're living for the world, they're living for the flesh. How come God hasn't gotten them yet? You haven't finished the story yet. The judgment seat of Christ is where the accountability and the performance review is. And God says, hey, some men's sins are open beforehand. Sometimes the Christian gets it in the rear down here. And some men, they follow after. Likewise, the good works of some, you see the result here and sometimes, but it says otherwise they cannot be hid. When you get to the judgment seat of Christ, guess what? Your bad is going to be seen by God and your good is going to be seen by God. Not to get to heaven or hell, we know that, but to see what kind of reward you get, right? It's Colossians 3, right? And whatsoever you do, do it knowing that of the Lord we shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for we serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. You're not going to dodge it. And if you don't repent, we're all going to make mistakes. Amen? We're all going to step off the line. Well, I'm going to make a mistake. You're going to make a mistake. It's what you do when you make a mistake. What do you do when you step off the line? What do you do when God sends that prophet, that warning, that message? Do you harden up or do you repent? Because if you don't repent, you're done. You're done. God will let you pay the price. 2 Chronicles 20, 36, 6, 20. I don't even know what number it is. What time is it? All right, I haven't eaten. All right, 36, 16. But they mocked the messengers of God 
and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people. Watch this next phrase. Till there was no remedy. God says, I'm pleading, I'm pleading, I'm pleading. But he goes, I've had enough and you got yourself so far down the road that I just got to cut you off. It's like a diseased finger. You don't get that disease taken care of and that gangrene sets in and it gets to a place where there could be no remedy. You know what you got to do? Cut it off. And God says, you guys got so far from me and so steeped in wickedness and so steeped in stuff that it's not even right to speak about in mixed company. You know what I got to do? I got to cut you off. That's the lesson of 2 Kings. I don't want you to pay the price. I don't want to pay the price. We're not talking about hell. We're talking about a loss of some other things that God could have for you. He doesn't want you to suffer loss. Because 1 Corinthians 3 says some Christians are going to suffer loss. Not hell, but loss. Let's not be those people, amen? Let's learn the lesson. Let's bow our heads.